Well, this morning we're going to be thinking a little bit about rejection, and I'm just curious by show of hands, has anybody in this room ever felt rejected? Anybody? All right. Some, some of you have not. We need to talk later. That must be amazing. Um, but I think that what we know is, is that rejection is actually part of the human experience, right? Uh, we all have experienced some kind of rejection in one form or another. Uh, my guess is many of you have expected rejection on a number of levels. Uh, I can remember a number of cases of rejection. One I'll share with you uh, was when I was in the sixth grade. Now, I grew up with a mom who had a really good voice, uh, used to sing all of the solos in church. Uh, in fact, she would show up to pick me up from school in her van with the, the windows rolled down, uh, just bellowing out Brooklyn Tabernacle. And if you don't know what that is, let me just tell you, uh, it is very embarrassing for a seventh grader to have their mom pick them up, screaming at the, the height of her voice about how great Jesus is. And your friend's just looking at you like, that's your mom, right? Uh, and so that was my experience. Uh, I still remember when I was in junior high, uh, I had one of my uh, principals tell me, hey, your name's Vincent. Is it your mom, that lady that sings so well? And I said, yes, sir, that's my mom. And he said, I bet you could sing well too. Why don't you sing for us? And I said, nope, she got all of it. And so um, I just never had any kind of music ability. Uh, I knew this, though, because in the sixth grade, all of the kids were trying out for choir. Now, my understanding was anybody that tried out for choir made choir. Like, it wasn't possible not to make choir. And so I showed up for my audition, and uh, I sang, and I got done, and uh, I got my rejection notice. I was told by my sixth grade music teacher that I, I could not sing. And I'm sitting there, I remember the feeling of rejection, thinking, like, how bad do you have to sing for a grown woman to tell a sixth grader that he is not allowed to participate in the choir, right? There's like a hundred people. Who's going to notice one bad voice? And that was one of my early experiences with rejection that trained me for many rejections that were to come. But I'm guessing that you've been rejected too. Uh, maybe it is the girl that you asked out said that she is not interested. Or you have a dream job where you got a letter in the mail that said, unfortunately, blah, 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 someone more qualified, and then you just threw it away, right? Or maybe you saw a group of people from college on vacation together on Facebook having the time of their lives, and they didn't invite you. Well, maybe you had a dad who abandoned your family. Or you tried out for the band here at Trinity Bible Church, and Malachi said, you're not good enough because you sound like Josh. I don't know. I'm kidding. He doesn't do that. Um, I mean, he does reject people, but he doesn't tell them they sound like me. But we all know the pain of rejection. In fact, our hearts long for acceptance that rejection denies. And now, I don't want to minimize the pain of rejection um, because I know that the heart of humanity is, is very fragile. But I do want to point out that some psychologists actually see you and me as being kind of like love cups. God created us as love cups. And the way that we operate best is when we are filled up with love, a sense of self-worth, companionship, and comfort. Like the low fuel light on your car, the pain of rejection actually lets us know that our love cups are empty and require a refill from other people. And rejection can cause us to do some silly and even sinful things, that sense of pain over being rejected. Now, some view the purpose of God and others as actually being responsible for filling that love cup and even treat that desire to have their love cup filled as God itself. 
Some think that, that I need to have that feeling met, and, and, and their whole life is geared around feeling this, this love cup. But if God isn't calling you to live life looking for your next love cup refill, and I believe that you've been made for more, then what is it that he has called you and me to? And how do you deal with the pain of rejection? See, I think this morning Peter actually has some encouragement for us as he encourages these other Christians about how to deal with rejection. He gives us a gospel-centered hope for those of us who are struggling with rejection this morning. This is good news. Now, we're back in our Hopeful Exiles series in 1 Peter 2, 4 to 10, where the Apostle Peter is writing to a group, you'll remember, of mostly Gentile Christians in these Roman provinces of Asia Minor. He, he calls them uh, a people who are known as elect exiles. They, they know rejection. Now, they aren't elect exiles because they are far from home. That's not the sense that we get from the letter. And in fact, what we actually find is they, they are kind of in their own home, but have begun to feel like aliens in their own home and rejected by the people they love most because of their newfound faith. And so they feel far from home at home. This has led their families, friends, co-workers to treat them as though they are outsiders when they are inside. And they have experienced both social rejection and the occasional political persecution. But hang on, because Peter offers some good news for those of us who are struggling with rejection. And our big idea this morning, what we're going to see is this. God's elect proclaim the good news of Jesus, who was rejected by the world so that we can be accepted by God. Let me say that again. God's elect, his elect proclaimed the good news of Jesus, who was rejected by the world so that we could be accepted by God. And we're going to talk about that this morning. Now, the first thing that we're going to see is this. We need to be reminded, we need to remember that Jesus was rejected by men while being accepted by God. We see that in verse 4. Jesus was rejected by men while being accepted by God. Now, you'll remember in verse 3, it ended with us being told that we need to taste and see that the Lord is good. And he's speaking of Jesus there as Lord. Now, verse 4 continues the discussion of Jesus calling him a living stone. And this stone, he says, creates two different responses, or it has two different relationships to this stone. And he says this in verse 4, as you come to him, being Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Now, as we'll see, the Old Testament often uses this metaphor of a stone, and it's used in different ways. Sometimes the stone is used to build up, and sometimes it is used to trip up. And, and so we see this both in the Old Testament. But Peter here calls Jesus a living stone, a very unique description in the Bible. Now, I don't typically think of stones as living, right? I don't go out and water my rock. Uh, I don't, you know, feed it. Um, if you're doing that, like, just come talk to us. We need to get you some help. Rocks don't work that way. And yet here, notice that he calls Jesus a living stone. Now, I like what Peter Ochtemeyer says in his commentary about this phrase. He says it surely refers to the fact that Christ has been risen from the dead. He lives. It's speaking to the reality that we have a resurrected living King Jesus. Jesus is not dead anymore. Now, do you see what Peter's doing here? 
Peter reminds Christians experiencing rejection for their faith that their rejected King Jesus is who they need to look to. See, Jesus was rejected by men. He was rejected by his own family. He was rejected by his own people, Israel. But here, I I think that he's saying something even more specific about the nature of the rejection. Because if you'll notice that word for rejected, it's actually in the perfect tense. In other words, it's saying that it's something that's happened in the past, but is continuing to happen. There's continuing to be this experience of a rejection of Jesus. So I think Peter's actually speaking of those who are rejecting the gospel at the time that Peter is writing this. There are those who are sharing Christ, are sharing the reason that they live the way that they do, and are being rejected because of the message of the gospel. In other words, Jesus came to be rejected by a rebellious humanity who still rejects our living Christ when they reject his good news. But don't miss this. This also means rejection by men, and here's the good news, doesn't necessarily mean rejection by God. Did you hear that? Rejection by men or women or children doesn't necessarily mean rejection by God. See, just consider our glorious King Jesus who is simultaneously rejected by men, even those closest to him, but in the sight of God, he is what? What does it say? Chosen and precious. Now that word for chosen is interesting here because it is the same word for elect that's used in verse 1 of chapter 1 to describe us and Christians as elect exiles. We are elect in the same way that Christ is elect. Jesus is God's chosen and beloved son with whom he is well pleased and whom he gave all honor at the resurrection. See, this is fascinating. Man's reject is God's elect. Do you see it? This is the way that God views him. Man's trash is God's treasure. And God gave all honor to Jesus who died a shameful death. This really is, I believe, a gospel-centered argument from the greater to the lesser about the nature of the way that we ought to understand this group of Christians who are feeling the rejection of man. He's arguing from the greater to the lesser. He's moving from Christ to us. See, God's word says our biggest problem isn't that our love cups are empty, but rather that the cup of God's wrath is full. That's our great problem. What we need to be satisfied is not that deep longing for love and and affirmation. Ultimately, our great need is that we actually have someone come and satisfy the cup of wrath intended for us that we deserve justly. And just read Romans 1 to 3. That's where Paul argues forcefully that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Catch this. All of us have rejected God flatly. That's the message of the Bible. You and me, there's no person in this room that has not rejected God. We have refused to acknowledge God as God. That's our starting point as humanity. Now that might not sound that bad to you. If I just ignore God, that doesn't sound very hostile. But I believe that if you read the Bible and you begin to understand the way that we were created from the perspective of our creator, I think that R.C. Sproul gets it right when he says that our refusing and rejecting God as God is actually what he calls cosmic treason. We have created a sin 
and broken a law against the highest of authorities and not seeing him and treating him as God. And Jesus is God's answer to that. Jesus is the good news, the answer that God has given us to that cosmic treason. He is the God-man, God's eternal son who took on human flesh and lived in perfect obedience to God in every way and then died a sacrificial death on the cross for our sins and he was raised from the dead. That's why he is God's living stone. He will save all who will come to him by faith. In fact, this morning we are baptizing two people who have actually put their faith in Jesus Christ and said that he is my king and I'm going to follow him and I'm going to be incorporated into his people because I believe that God is the God that he says that he is. Isn't that good news? God's still doing that. Now this is why I believe this is so important. Don't miss this. Jesus is not only truly God, but he is also the truest human that has ever lived. See, Jesus did not come to earth to fill his love cup. We just need to understand that about the nature of Jesus. Jesus did not come to earth because he was lonely and longing. That's not the nature of our Savior and our King. No, if we understand the God of the Bible, everything that God is, Jesus is because he is fully God. And Jesus was not in need of anything when he came for us, for you and for me. I think that's a really bad misconception if you're thinking to yourself, like, Jesus came to earth because he was in heaven and it was kind of boring without me. And so he came to get the fun. That's not the nature of what the gospel says about us and God. No, Jesus came. He came because the good news of the gospel is that he came not to have his love cup filled, but rather to experience rejection on your and my behalf. He came to experience rejection for you and me. See, the good news of the gospel is not that you will never feel lonely or rejected again in this world. Though that day is coming. But what we find is, is that you've been made for way more than living every day trying to figure out whether or not others have sufficiently filled up your love cup and then Facebooking and bragging and blogging about it. That's not what we've been made for. We've been made for much more than that. And this is why I think it's so important to start with God and who he is and Christ and then work down to who we are and what we've been called to. If we, if we mess that up, things get muddled up really quickly. Now just think about it. How many of you girls have been rejected by a guy or guys, and you began to wonder if this in some way was kind of Morse code from God about whether or not you were accepted by him? Or maybe you've been fired or you've received a bad evaluation and you wondered why God didn't accept you, or at least not as much as he did Larry and Billing, Right? I mean, Larry's always getting raises. And this is where I think the prosperity gospel gets it so very wrong. You know, you can be God's elect and the world's reject. That's the truth. The gospel tells us this. Just ask Jesus. And what if God is actually using and wielding the rejection that you so fear in your life to actually bring about something good and beautiful and glorious and you've never noticed it? Have you ever considered that? That the rejection that is so painful is actually an instrument in the Redeemer's hands? That maybe in that moment of rejection that is so all around you, that God is actually doing more good than he's ever done in all of the joyful relationships that you've had. Think about it. What if God is actually using rejection in your life to kill the idol of romantic love or affirmation at work? To turn your heart 
towards God's glory above all else. Would you take that, would you take that rejection and use it in that way? So be careful about allowing your pursuit of acceptance to fill that love cup from others to take on a godlike status. That's idolatry. But notice what our text says. It says that Jesus is the only living stone who can make you a living stone too. He says that in verse 6 or verse 5. Notice there he says, second, God's made us a people to display his glory. God's made us a people to display his glory. Notice what he says in verse 5, 1 Peter 2, 5. He says this, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now think about this for just a minute. Here we find that Peter is reacquainting these beleaguered Christians who are feeling rejected with a true state of affairs from God's perspective. They are truly and fully God's people. Now, you'll remember that Jesus actually gave Simon the name Peter. You remember that back in Matthew 16? He tells us about that. And his name, Peter, it actually means rock. And he says, on this rock, I will build my church. Here, I believe Peter makes clear that it is not the person of Peter upon which Christ would build his church. He is, in some ways, I believe, possibly disavowing a kind of primacy that some people might be giving him. Because notice that Peter's testimony that Jesus is the Christ or God's king is that which is the rock upon which the church will be built. And he highlights that here. Notice, he just called Jesus a living stone. You call me the rock. He is the living stone. He is the one upon which all will be built. And here, notice that he describes these Gentile Christians as living stones too. Now the emphasis here in this text is corporate. Not just to them as individual stones, but as stones that are being fitted together and built into something. Did you notice that? They're not just individual sort of stones that are out here and there that people are rocking out, you know, walking out, taking up, and skipping on the water. They're actually purposeful stones, stones that are being built together into a house, into a priesthood. You'll notice here they're put together into a spiritual house and a holy priesthood. Now, in the Old Testament, whenever the word house is used, it's often used to describe the temple, that place where God would come and meet with his people. It is a place where his presence was considered to be most fully experienced. It was the house of God. And notice here that it is a spiritual house. Uh, Tom Schreiner writes that it's called spiritual because this house is animated and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They are also not just a spiritual house, but a holy priesthood. Now, the emphasis here isn't that each is a priest, but that collectively, They are a priesthood, a people who function to mediate relationship with God. They are displaying the character of God, working in his house. Now, you'll remember that priests were that special group of Israelites. There was Israelites in the Old Testament who tended to the house of God. And they were allowed greater access to God in his presence than anybody else, and they were all offering sacrifices continuously day by day. Well, these Gentiles here, they are offering sacrifices spiritual sacrifices through Jesus Christ that are acceptable to God. Now that, that same Jesus that is rejected by men 
Notice here that he continues to be the only way of acceptance with God based on his once-for-all sacrifice. Did you notice that? The sacrifices, the spiritual sacrifices that are being offered, they are still always through Jesus Christ. The only sacrifice that is acceptable to the Father comes through the Son. There's no other way to bring pleasure to the Father than it is in Christ. And if we are not in Christ, then we cannot please God. See, that same Jesus rejected by men, continues to be the only way of acceptance with God and that once-for-all sacrifices. But what are those spiritual sacrifices? You know, what is he speaking of? Well, I think they're at least the proclamation of the excellencies of God that we find in verse 9 that we're going to talk about in a minute. But it probably also means anything that Christians do by the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Christ. Those are spiritual sacrifices offered to the Lord. Did you know that, that you're part of a priesthood that is actually in this moment as we are gathering as a people, encouraging and edifying one another, proclaiming and singing out the truths about who God is, we are actually offering up spiritual sacrifices to God. This is something that God finds acceptable and pleasing this morning. Isn't that good? It makes God happy for you to join together with the people of God in worship. Anybody excited about that? Like you ought to be. That is amazing. Well, here's what we find, though. I don't think we need to miss this. We don't need to miss how revolutionary this reality is. We have greater access to God through Christ than Old Testament priests. Let me just say that again. We have greater access to God than Old Testament priests. Are you feeling that? I mean, I know maybe some of you are thinking like, boy, I long for the good old glory days. I wish I could go back to the Old Testament and really experience God. And here we're told in the New Testament, guess what? That's actually a downgrade. Where you are right now is part of the fulfillment of what they looked forward to. So if you've been connected by faith to the living stone, then God is building you up with other living stones. Into a house. Into a house. God is building us up into a people. But take note here. Take note here of how Peter encourages Christians feeling rejected. Notice how he takes, encourages Christians feeling rejected. You know, some psychologists will tell you that to combat that sense of rejection, you need to boost your self-esteem. You need to think more of yourselves. And you'll remember that Peter kind of does this to Jesus in Matthew 16. Do you remember that? Matthew 16, Jesus just told him, hey, you're the rock. I'm going to build my church on you. And he says, now let me tell you about how I'm going to have to go and suffer and die. And I'll paraphrase here, but Peter says, oh, no, Jesus, I can't let that happen to you. You're wonderful and majestic and... Man, beautiful, and that'll never, I'll never let that happen. And what does Jesus turn and say to him? Thanks for filling up my love tank there, bro. I'm feeling super special right now. No, he says, get thee behind me, Satan, right? Now, why is that? Because Peter did not understand that Jesus had come for glory that he did not know of. He did not understand the greater thing that he was made for. And that for Peter to be all that he could be, Jesus needed to go to the cross to make sure that his glory could be manifest in his life. You know, here like Jesus, Peter doesn't understand the point, uh, or here like Jesus, Peter now understanding the point, tells these Christians what they need to put their confidence in before God. And notice he doesn't say that, I know you feel rejected, so uh, let me just remind you of your high IQ because you're really smart, you're smarter than most, and you dress really well. And you brush your teeth regularly, and they're really straight, and you're well-behaved. So God is surely going to accept you. That's not the way that 
that Peter encourages them. In fact, did you notice that in verse 5, he doesn't point to these Christians at all, but to Jesus? And he says, you've been accepted by God because of who Jesus is. Like, you've got to get that right. If you want acceptance with God, it begins and ends with how you approach Christ. That's the encouragement that we still have today. God accepts us based on who Christ is. And let me just say that God is doing something amazing in the church today. See, the church fulfills what Israel anticipated. Just as Josh Josh Griever said when he preached on this text uh, a year ago, he said, we are Israel 2.0. And that's the reality. The church does not replace Israel. The church is not equal to Israel. The church fulfills what Israel promised. And we are experiencing the greatness of what God is doing in redemptive history. You know, when I was in Jerusalem a few years ago, someone said, it's good to, to pray here. I hear, the, I hear the reception's better. Not according to Peter. See, this is really good news. Trinity Bible Church, we are truly the people of God in a privileged place in history. And let's just not take that for granted. But also notice here that Peter doesn't have a category for rogue maverick Christians not connected to a local church. He says, if, if you're a stone, then you're, you're part of something. If, if you're a stone, a living stone, that's connected to the living stone, then you're going to be connected to other Christians. That's basic spirituality. He has made you to be part of his people. If you're connected to the head, then you're connected to the body. Now here at Trinity, we believe that it's important for you as a Christian to, to join a healthy church and to officially commit yourself to carrying out those 61 another's of the New Testament. We want you to make spiritual sacrifices to the Lord as a display of his glory into the world outside. And you need Christian community to do that according to the Bible. Uh, let me just encourage you, if you're not a part of a church, uh, we have a connections class coming up November 14th. We would love for you to come and, and sit in on that as a first step of becoming a part of our church. But notice that God says true spirituality is lived out in community. There's a third thing that we see here, though, and that's this. Those who reject the living stone will be rejected by God. Those who reject the living stone will be rejected by God. And you can see that uh, in verses 6 to 9. Now, don't miss this. Nothing in this life will shape both today and your last day and every day in between like the way that you respond to this gospel that Peter speaks of. See, Peter utilizes a barrage of Old Testament text here to show that the same stone Jesus both builds up and tears down. It both brings honor and shame, and this will all rest on whether one receives or rejects the gospel. Now notice first that it builds up in verse 6. Did you see that? In verse 6, Peter begins by quoting a text from Isaiah 28. Isaiah 28, 16, which says this, For it stands in Scripture, and isn't this fascinating? Did you notice that Peter likes the Old Testament? Like, I know there's some contemporary people who don't like Old Testament much or say it's like, you know, not in vogue anymore, but Peter seemed to think it was pretty good. He even calls it Scripture. It's the Word of God. But he says this, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Well, this is encouraging. And I think the context is interesting. If you read Isaiah 28, if you go back and read Isaiah 28, see, God has just told in Isaiah 28 of a new creation and a new Adam that are coming. And this new Adam, he says, is actually going to be like a gardener who takes out the great ancient snake, Satan, 
who has terrorized humanity. Now, when you get to chapter 28, what we find is that God is in that text actually judging the priests and prophets of Israel for rejecting the word of God through Isaiah because the priests and prophets, those leaders, thought it was just too simple. It wasn't interesting. You know, the message was basically trust and hope in God. And they said, "Mm, no, I think we need more. I think we need more than trust and hope in God. And so we found that there, they saw, they saw the gospel that was given to them as too rudimentary. Of course, we should have expected this. Because you'll remember in Isaiah 6, do you remember that glorious text about the presence and vision of the glory of God that Isaiah has? And then he says, who will go for me? And, and Isaiah says, here I am, him I, send me. And he sends him. And what does he tell him his ministry is going to be like? Well, he tells him it's going to be a ministry of rejection, Right? He says, uh, you're going to go and you're going to preach and preach and preach till hearts get harder and harder and harder. Are you excited now? Like what a ministry, right? And yet that is exactly what happens in the context of Isaiah 28. He is bringing them good news and they are rejecting good news. Their hearts have gotten harder. Does that sound familiar at all to what's happening in 1 Peter? Where people are taking the gospel out and experiencing rejection? And here, I believe Peter's encouragement is you have the same kind of ministry that Jesus and Isaiah had, that you are going to deliver the good news and there are some who are going to reject it. But catch this, for those who believe Jesus is the fulfillment of that chosen, precious cornerstone that Isaiah promised would come. Now, what is that cornerstone? What is a cornerstone? Uh, it's clearly the foundation stone upon which the, the rest of the, the building is resting. The rest of the stones are joined. And the cornerstone builds up some, but notice it also trips up others. And catch what Peter's saying. Everyone who puts their faith in Christ will be honored when Jesus returns on the last day to judge the living and the dead. Everyone who puts their faith in Christ will stand. Everyone else will fall. And that is good news for believers. But notice that it trips up others in verses 7 to 8. And here he quotes Psalm 118.22. He says this in verse 17, or verse 7. Notice what he says. He, quote, he quotes Psalm 118, 22, and he says this. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, in Psalm 118, where he's talking about this, these builders that rejected this cornerstone, in the psalm, King David has returned to the temple to give praise to God because he has given him victory over his enemies. And God's king is the rejected stone, this King David, who has become the cornerstone. And those builders who rejected him are the foreign, unbelieving kings who rejected God's king. And then quoting Isaiah 8, 4, he adds to it in in verse 8 in 1 Peter, he says this. He says, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, explaining they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now, don't miss this. Notice here that the same gospel, same message, right? Two radically different responses. Same message goes out to radically different effects. You'll notice that for some it promises honor and builds up, and for others it promises shame and it trips up when Jesus returns. And all of this, the response of whether you're built up or tripped up hinges on whether or not you disobey the word. So I think that's kind of important to know what he's talking about. How can we know whether or not we're disobeying the word? Well, this speaks of the word of the gospel. 
which Peter says demands obedience. Now, how do we obey the good news? Maybe you're thinking that sounds kind of legalistic, but Peter doesn't think so. Peter thinks that if you really hear the gospel, that you actually are called to obey it. There's a response that is explained or required. And we see this all throughout the New Testament. So for instance, you'll remember that at Pentecost in Acts 2.38, Peter tells the Jews that they need to repent of their sins and be baptized in light of the gospel. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Did you notice that? He says, here's the gospel, and he doesn't say, so we're good now. He says, no, here's how you respond. You need to repent of your sins, and you need to be baptized. And then in Romans 10.9, Paul also says that we must confess Jesus is Lord, writing, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So so do you see the the responses that the gospel calls for? It actually calls for a response. It calls for you to to, to believe and and to confess and to repent of sins and to be baptized. It's a message that comes to transform and change and shape and redirect your life. That's what the gospel does. And that's what Peter means by obeying the gospel. And don't miss this. Anyone who does this will be saved. So if you're here this morning and you have not put your faith in this gospel, like Patrick and Sienna and all of us have, then please don't leave without talking to me about how you can become part of the people of God. I would love to tell you about that. But let's not miss an important phrase about the power of God's word. Notice again what he says in verse 8. He says, some disobey the gospel, and did you catch this? As they were destined to do. Now why would Peter say something like this? Some, when they speak of this, say it's kind of a truism. Well, if they didn't believe, well, we know that they don't believe, so we look back and say it must be because they were destined not to. Rather than saying they were destined not to believe, so when they received the word, they did not believe it. Does that make sense? Like what came first, the chicken or the egg? And people have different kind of perspectives on that. But as I look at this, the context of Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 28 that, that Isaiah will preach, would preach to a people who would reject God's word as God had sent it forth to do, uh, I think sets the context and the frame of the way that we should understand it here in 1 Peter. See, I don't believe Peter is telling Christians to figure out who is destined for what, because that is way above our pay grade, right? We are finite creatures. Only God knows that. We're not trying to figure out God's hidden will. He doesn't call us to that. But we need to remember that God is sovereign And his word, the gospel, never returns void. Now, what does it mean that the gospel never returns void? It means that it never returns empty or or, or not accomplishing what God set forth to do with it. And so, if you see the word go out and you continue to see people reject the gospel, then you might be thinking that there might be something with God and his power. And what God says is, no, that gospel is doing something that you see not. And it's something fearsome and scary and you need to take it seriously. God's word can also harden hearts in the same way that it can bring new life. The, the, same, the same word that can bring about a stone to life can also harden a stone to death. And God's word always achieves its purposes. In the doctrine of the word of God, John Frame says this, the power of the word brings wonderful blessings to those who hear it in faith. Amen. And with a disposition to obey, but, but it hardens those who hear it with indifference 
resistance and rebellion. So for those hearing and studying the Word of God regularly, it is so important that they hear in faith, lest the Word actually come and and harden their hearts and become a fire of judgment to them. See, God's Word never leaves us the same. We hear it for the better or for the worst. God always, His Word, when it comes, is doing something in us. In fact, please just hear me. Often the things that God is doing through His Word in your heart are imperceptible to you. You might think that God is doing nothing and he is doing some of his greatest work. You don't always see with spiritual eyes with the clarity that you think you do. God always keeps his word and his word always does his work. So what is God's God's word good for? It's good for everything. God's powerful word never returns void. I love what Charles Spurgeon once said. He said, the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. And the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. See, the same gospel builds up some into a spiritual house and he brings down others to reject it. You know, I wonder a little here as I read this, if just maybe Peter is flipping the script. You ever, you ever wondered about stuff like that? Like, is he, is he actually flipping the script here? These Christians are so worried about their own feelings of rejection that they've lost sight of the greater tragedy all around them. People who are rejected by God because they have rejected Christ. They are so worried about how they feel and their love cups and their love tanks and their affirmation and whether or not they are being accepted when in reality they need to be concerned about those who are not accepted by God. I'm wondering if that's you this morning. Let me ask you, have you lost a heart for those who have rejected Jesus? Like the thought of needing to share Christ with even your lost children is not ready on the forefront of your mind and your purpose day in and day out. You've lost that eagerness to tell your friends even that you love, much less your enemies, that they are in danger and need to run to Christ. I don't want to make light of your sense of personal rejection because the human heart is fragile in many ways, but has your lesser rejection by men or women distracted you from the greater rejection of others by God who have rejected Jesus? This morning we're going to be baptizing a couple of folks, and you're going to hear a testimony by by Patrick that I've told you about before, about how he went to get a haircut from Ashley Schneider. And she was telling me the story about how surprised she was when she told him about her involvement at Trinity and she wanted him to come to church. And she did not, she said, I did not even think I wanted to ask him because I had asked like 500 people to come to church and not one of them showed up. And she was thinking, I I don't even know if I want to do this. And, you know, the Holy Spirit led her to do it. And guess what? Number 501 showed up to church and met God's people who introduced him to Jesus Christ. Don't let the world's rejection obscure your high calling from you. God has called you to share Christ with others. We have many other stories like that. But we have one last point, and that's this. The chief end of man is to rejoice in God. This is, this is great news. The chief end of man is to rejoice in God in God. Has somebody told you that religion is supposed to be like a straitjacket and sad? That is not the message of the Bible. God 
calls us, he commands us to rejoice because we were made to be a rejoicing people. He says that in verses 9 to 10. Now, you'll notice in these verses that Peter reminds them again of their new identity in Christ with these corporate descriptions. But for the purpose of of highlighting their ultimate purpose. Now, notice what he says in verses 9 to 10. He says this. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Isn't that a good verse? Excuse, I'm sorry. That's a great verse, right? I'm sorry. That's just, that's good stuff. I couldn't let that go silent. 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That is great news. Now, as you read that, did you see what he's doing? He again is pointing to them as a fulfillment of what Israel pointed them to. You'll remember in Exodus 19, maybe, that these same descriptions are given to Israel at Mount Sinai, where they are receiving the law and where they are becoming the people of God. And there God calls Israel his treasured possession. And he says that they will be to God a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But notice how he here points out the church's purpose saying, I have done this, that, that. This is the purpose that I've done this for. Okay, I'm ready. What is it? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, this is one of the texts in 1 Peter that is often used to make the case for the audience being primarily Gentiles who were walking in darkness, not in the light of the word or the light of the law, but every person was walking in darkness, stumbling around like blind men following one another through a gauntlet. This is not a good picture. But God called us out of that for the purpose of proclaiming his excellencies. He has showed us mercy by rescuing us from the cup of wrath. That's the glorious nature of who we are. Now don't miss this. We, We find all over the pages of theology and throughout the pages of scripture that the cheap end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And this text, I believe, not only strengthens that, but clarifies what it looks like to enjoy God. It is not just about enjoying in the sense of, I just internalize how good God is, but it's actually a vocalized rejoicing and giving voice to the greatness and goodness of who God is. It is a verbal delight in God. It's one of those things that, that happens in the heart, but you can't keep inside, and you've got to talk about with others. It is a rejoicing in God for being God. And I think this is exactly what you were made for. And this is regardless of whether or not you have received the gospel or not. You need to know that God has made you to rejoice in God being God. See, we weren't made to have our love cups filled, but to rejoice in God's godness. And that it is glorious, and he is glorious in and of himself. Of course, this darkness and light image comes from creation in Genesis 1. And it's a metaphor for the new creation that has arrived in Christ. See, God created us to glorify him. And the new creation is for the purpose of glorifying his works as marvelous. See, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And I believe those two things go hand in hand. Please hear me. It is not in any, by any means, God's glory at odds with your enjoyment. If you've seen it that way, then you probably have lived a miserable life. 
See, God wants you to understand that you have been made for his glory and to enjoy him. And those things go hand in hand. And you can't have one without the other. If you are trying to find joy apart from God and his glory, then you are probably starving spiritually right now. You have not tasted and seen that God is good, and so you're spiritually starving. I love what C.S. Lewis says when he picks up on this. He says, I think that we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but it actually completes the enjoyment. Right? If we want to enjoy God, we need to give word to it. It is its appointed consummation. So if you're enjoying without telling and rejoicing, then, then you're just a step away from experiencing the fullness of what you've been made for. In other words, those who taste and see that the Lord is good will want to talk about it. They will want to declare how good the Lord is to others. I'm just wondering, uh, last week, how many of you, when you heard Malachi preach on taste and see that the Lord is good, left here thinking to yourself, I kind of want one of those Harry and David pears? Anybody? I don't like pears either. But the way that he was talking about that pear, I was just thinking, I need to get one. I might actually like pears and I never knew it. Right? I mean, the delight and the, the joy, the boyish laughter, I was thinking, this is awesome. Like, I need to get it on that box of pears. Now, I'm sure I'm going to get a pear next week. But how many of you are thinking the same thing? You know, I once had a Christian friend um, who told me that they wanted to go and see a bunch of marvelous wonders of the world all by themselves, and they thought that would be awesome. And I know that's probably you. You're thinking to yourself, like, yeah, I'd love to go see, like, the Grand Canyon by myself because I like alone time, me and God. And I get that. I get that. But I actually had a friend tell me that one time, and I said, you know, I think you're missing something even better. Like, I know you love your alone time with God, and that's good. But something better is to be in community where you're rejoicing in God being God, where you're actually able to remember God for who he is and what he's done and able to recount it. And you like, a, you like a family can come together and talk about this is our story and isn't God good and isn't God for us and can't we trust in God and things are hard out there but our hope is sure and it is coming and I can't wait for Jesus to get back. See, that's the nature I believe that, that God has made us for. You know, just like when Malachi was talking about who, how good those pears were, I started wondering if I might actually like those pears too. I wanted to taste the pears simply because of the excitement that he had over those pears. You know, if the thought of the taste of a piece of fruit being acceptable to Malachi can capture my thoughts in my week like that, how much more should the thought of being accepted by God in Christ ought to capture our hearts and minds and propel our lips to speak of the reality that we have tasted and seen that the lordship of Jesus Christ is very good. See, that ought to encompass our lives. Let's pray.